Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. Secure Talk is brought to you by Adequest, your cybersecurity and compliance partner. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this edition of Secure Talk. And today we are joined by the CEO of Pluralock, Ian Patterson. And Ian's going to talk to us about some of the solutions that Pluralock provides related to behavior based authentication. But first off, Ian, how are you today? Doing well. How about yourself? Pretty good. Uh, As I mentioned earlier in our uh, brief conversation, the the weather is starting to finally improve here, and the air is clear. Um, You're based up in uh, in Victoria, that's correct? Correct. Yeah, we're we're on the furthest west coast, so I've been traveling back east quite a bit, and they've been complaining about the smoke um, from the fires in my province uh, that have drifted over into theirs. Exactly, and I was gonna I was gonna kind of rib you a little bit about that as well because uh, we've had. Uh, about a week of really, really hazy weather, and um, everybody here wants to point their finger to our neighbors up north, which is you guys. Um, and I, I have to remind people that sometimes it's the fires up there, and sometimes it's the fires down here. So uh, right now, it just seems that you guys got hit pretty hard. Did the did the recent rain help at all? It did. That's yeah. No, it's it's uh, been cooling off pretty nicely. That's good. Well, hey, let's um, let's jump into this. Uh, before we start talking about, you know, the, the technology or solutions that you provide, can you give us um, a little bit of background about, you know, your experience in the um, security and auth space? Yeah, I'm actually a data guy before I'm a security guy. And what I've been noticing quite a bit over the last um, probably six months, this, this came up a lot actually at Black Hat and DEF CON a, a couple weeks ago, is that most companies are becoming data companies first. And the result of the data that they analyze and make decisions on um, inform security. Uh, They also inform investment research. They inform analytics. And so really every company is becoming a data company. It just so happens that what we do with the data here at Pluralock is that we make cybersecurity decisions. And specifically, we make decisions around identity. Um, before Pluralock, uh, I was founder and CEO of a company called Exapic. Uh, we were doing data monetization, helping organizations understand the value in their data um, and be able to monetize it. Uh, that that company got acquired. And then before that, I was director of insights at a company called Terapeak, which again was a, a data company. We were helping e-commerce retailers understand what to sell, who to sell it to, what price they should sell it at. Um, what markets they should be selling in. So really the the, the commonality here is is data science um, has has been my passion. Uh, Terapeak was acquired by eBay not uh, not too long ago, a couple of years ago. and uh, and and really, I've been effectively doing the same thing, which is using data to make a business decision. And um, at Pluralock, that business decision really is around identity. And yeah, so it's a bit of a stretch to go from making business decisions. Uh, related to either consumer behavior or other other areas to more internal security type decisions. How did you make that connection or, you know, what um, prompted you to kind of go into this space? Well, part of it is frustrated frustrated that my um, my data kept getting compromised. 
So I, I do this informal poll where I talk with uh, folks and I just ask the question, hey, has your personal information been compromised? You know, were you in the LinkedIn hack? Uh, were your, was your data in the um, Dropbox hack? Was your data in the Target hack? Was your data in the Equifax hack? And so in a lot of cases, uh, the folks that I would talk to say, nope, you know, I've, I've never been compromised. I've never gotten an email saying I've been compromised. And then when I would go through and ask them questions, you know, do you shop at Walmart? Do you shop at, uh, or sorry, not Walmart, uh, Target? Do you shop at uh, Home Depot? Um, you know, they would say yes and say, well, you know, it's, it's possible that you've, been, you've had your data hacked and, and you're not actually aware of it. But for those who are aware of it, um, it's frustrating to see the uh, news out there of data breaches uh, increasing and getting larger in size and, and more prominence and not really being able to do anything about it. Um, so uh, Plurilock, the, the, the genesis here is that the majority of data breaches start with some sort of compromised credential. Um, if you look at the most recent Verizon data breach report, uh, four out of five data breaches occur with a, a stolen or uh, weak password. And that's actually up from three out of five the year previous. So if we can, if we can protect identity, um, we should be able to reduce or stop a lot of the data breaches that are occurring. Okay, and there's a, a, a wide variety of methods out there for protecting identity. Um, and you know, you're, you're taking a, um, a unique approach. You're looking at behavior-based authentication. Um, can you explain a little bit how that works? So the field of study is called behavioral biometrics. And similar to biometrics, which is the study of uh, aspects of, uh, of, of you as a person, which would be things like fingerprints or your DNA or uh, uh, your, your iris pattern. Behavioral biometrics is looking at your behavior over time specific to an individual and then making a determination on whether your particular behavior matches a store profile. So to put that in, in the context of a workplace, imagine typing on a, on a keyboard, uh, moving a mouse around, and the act of doing that behavior, we're able to extract the biometric markers, compare that against a store profile, and then make an identity decision on whether or not you are the authorized person. That's uh, in principle or in theory, theory theoretically, I guess that's the word I'm looking for, sounds pretty darn cool. Uh, how does it how does it play out in the real world? Um, okay, so I, I turn on my computer and you're going to start, um, I guess, recording my typical behaviors, and then then it it would it would match that up at a later point to say, hey, you know what, this is what Mark normally does, but he's doing something different today. Close. An important distinction is that we don't look at what the user does; we just look at how they do it. So there's a, there's a whole field of products uh, that Gartner calls UBA, user behavior analytics. And the, that's really looking at what the user does. What links do you click on? What files do you open? Um, what applications do you use? How does that relate to specific time of day and day of week? So there's, there's already a, a field of, of products out there that do fairly invasive monitoring of what you do. We're a little bit different. We don't look at what you do, we only look at how you do it. So to take a very basic example, um, when you're typing on a keyboard, uh, and if you type the word the, T-H-E, 
the time that it takes you to press down the T key and then release it uh, is called the dwell time. And then the time that it takes your finger to go from the T key to the H key is called the flight time. And then layering on top of that, we can also get rhythm and we can get cadence. And then on the mouse, things like X, Y coordinates, speed, direction, change in direction, clicks, double clicks, scrolls. There's a, a certain amount of uniqueness that every individual has with all of those different biometric markers. So it's the, it's the sum of that uniqueness that we review over a period of time, typically three to five seconds. And then we compare that behavior against the store profile. Now, the benefit to not looking at what you're doing um, is is pretty inherent when you can consider the privacy implications. Right. So you're not right. going to be looking at what websites I go to every day or what words that I'm what specific words or sentences I'm typing. Um, you're just like monitoring how I do it. Right. Which would make me as a user feel a lot better. I think is that where you're going with this? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's definitely software out there like most firewalls, for instance, will track what websites you're going to. Um, so that sort of thing happens in workplaces, but we we absolutely not only do we not need it, we don't want it. Um, you know, part of the risk with storing huge amounts of data these days is that it's it's always a target. So whenever we are in a product design meeting, one of the the chief requirements is that we don't want extra data. We only want the bare minimum needed um, to, in order to uh, to fuel our algorithms. Well, yeah, and, and if you t uh, look in the context of GDPR, for example, sometimes data is actually a liability. Um, and even if it's just metadata about uh, sites uh, that, that, that your employees are visiting, by, uh, by under GDPR, if that person is an EU resident, for example, they have the right to say, well, first off, you have to tell me what you're, what you're recording. Um, you have the right to rectify it, and then you have the, they can ask you to delete it if there's no business reason to have it. So... Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm not a GDPR expert. I'm not sure in this case because it's you're just looking on how people do stuff. I'm not even sure if that would would, would tie to them. And I guess it's limited liability compared to um, actual sites that they visited, etc. Let me ask you this: um, How long does it take to create a profile? So it, it's a little bit dependent on the type of work that you're doing. Um, you know, in a typical office environment, uh, you're looking at around a week. You know, five business days, working eight to five, nine to five. Ideally, we're looking for a, a certain amount of baseline activity at different points throughout the day. Um, in some cases, uh, users can be fairly even keel and have the same amount of energy and concentration in the morning as they do in the afternoon. Um, I certainly know and have colleagues uh, who come into the morning brimming with energy and then have a total crash right after lunch. And so ideally, we like to see a couple of, of samples um, of, of both types. But on average, uh, you know, we can, we can do that in about a week. Uh, the shortest amount of time would be about 20 minutes, um, just depending on, on what it is that we're, that we're looking at. Um, but with, with that week-long profile, we get a really good, accurate profile of that user, which we can then use for uh, what we call invisible identity assurance, which is that constant layer of protection to validate that it's the right person doing the right thing. Okay, so I'm going to log in, and I mean, what, if you're if you're doing authentication at login, 
I, I'm assuming that you're just looking at what I'm typing in in terms of name and password, or are you recording actions before I actually start to log in? Where does it where does it kick in? Yeah, so it's a great question. So w we make a, a a distinction that we don't look at the login phase. We're only post login. So whereas a, a traditional uh, two-factor authentication company like Duo, for instance, they, they would provide the protection for the point of login, but then after you've logged in, what protection exists? So what, what we're looking at doing is after you've done that initial authentication, you could be doing a login and password. Um, you know, maybe you use uh, Face ID or Touch ID. Maybe you're using Windows Hello, where you actually use some traditional biometrics. Um, after that authentic authentication takes place we are that layer of continuous authentication post login okay and we're, we're doing that on the desktop itself it could be the desktop could be a laptop um, we're, we're really focused on workplace authentication as opposed to um, more of the uh, sort of consumer authentication where uh, there's there's greater concerns um, like that you're mentioning around GDPR Okay, interesting. So, and and I guess that goes along with the research that um, even when somebody's credentials have been compromised, there's been a breach. A lot of times, the bad actors will just sit there and kind of observe for sometimes up to four or five months. Uh, and so, you might, if somebody logs in or they, they their their credentials have been breached, um, you might not pick up on it right away. Uh, at login, for example, um, but later, if you notice that, hey some of these behavioral um, uh, characteristics are radically different from the profile. You can catch them. It doesn't matter if it's a month, two months, three months later after login. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we're looking to, to catch them within seconds to minutes. Um, but that certainly takes the, I mean, I think the average right now is about 200 days that it takes to detect an intrusion. Okay. So if we, can, if we can take that time to detect down from 200 days to a couple of minutes, uh, you know, that's, that's a definite win. And I think also what, what we're finding is that the the standard kill chain is the the attacker or the intruder will gain access um, and and they'll start to move laterally through the network, but they're really doing reconnaissance. So the first thing after they they get that initial access is they're going to sit there, they're going to try and figure out where all the access uh, where where all the assets are that they want to go after and compromise. And bef before they start moving to um, to further pop additional shells or or start to exfil any data, there's that period of time where they're just sitting and they're watching. And I think the, the challenge with traditional approaches uh, that we've seen so far is, you know, if you're looking for just anomalous activity, depending on what the account is, it may not appear anomalous. So let me give you an example of that. Um, if you are a, a financial person, it's expected that as part of your daily work, you would be accessing sensitive financial information. You know, possibly that's confidential M&A activity, uh, could be payroll information, could be um, benefits information, but it's very sensitive stuff. And if that's part of your daily work, if somebody uh, externally were able to compromise your account and then go after that sensitive data because they want to exfiltrate it, it's not going to show up on any anomaly detection systems because that's what you're expecting that account to do. And that's where we've seen a lot of the um, existing solutions kind of fall down um, which is, it's it's actually the right account accessing that data. It just happens to be the wrong person accessing that data. Got it. And basically, it means you, if 
what you're saying is, is um, because you're not looking at actually what they're doing, again, it goes back to how they're doing it and you're going to be able to pick it up anyway. So it's, it's not looking for that anomalous behavior. It's looking for that, I guess, an anomalous um, action on the keyboard or how, how they're actually doing, um, doing those things. Um, what happens then? Okay, so somebody's, they're in my account and they're doing something that's radically different or... I don't know. I mean, do you, is there a sliding scale uh, in terms of degrees of differences from the profile that you go for and say, and, and a company maybe in certain roles, they can say it's got to be a, a 90% accurate match to the profile. Otherwise we, um, we do something to, to shut things down. I mean, is there a sliding scale or is it always, it's got to be within this range of what the profile says? No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the the benefit of of machine learning, just as as an approach, is that it's it's always scored on a gradient, right? So it's not a it's not a binary yes or no decision. It's to what degree of confidence do we have that it's actually Mark who is accessing these documents right now? Um, it's very common when we go in and do deployments, uh, be it a, a bank or be it a power plant or be it a, a you know, military agency, all of which are customers today, it's very common that you'll have different classes of users. Um, some are going to be higher risk and you want to be able to tailor uh, the sensitivity, but also the responses that you take. So to give you an example, um, when, when we go in and deploy in a bank, we'll typically have a different profile set up for the network administrators and the tellers who are able to, um, you know, access very sensitive data as part of their daily, uh, daily job. Um, but we'll, we may have a, a even higher degree of, of concern when we're, we're working with somebody who's able to um, wire millions of dollars. And then for, um, you know, more of the clerical workers who are not touching PII or, or personal financial information, um, you know, they, they may be on a kind of a lower end risk scale. So we can set up customized profiles. Um, there's, there's two main controls uh, that, that we adjust for those profiles. The first is how sensitive to make the system. Um, and that, that's really a trade-off between time to detect and, uh, and the interaction that you have with the user. So on a, on a hairpin trigger, uh, to use kind of a colloquial expression, you know, we may challenge a user within 20 seconds of of them sitting down and starting to do some work, and the challenge may be we lock their terminal. Um, whereas on the kind of lower risk side of things, we may wait for 40 to 60 seconds to challenge a user, and that challenge may take the form of an SMS to their smartphone or or even a push notification. So you're able to tailor both the responses that you take as well as the time that it takes based on the level of risk for the users that you're working with. Great. And that kind of answered my, my next question, which was the different responses that you can take um, and which would lead into another question about false positives. I'm I actually probably more often than not, it's the, well, you tell me, is <laughs> what's the percentage of, of false positives that you get? Um, and, and that's probably also a degree of the, um, the type of, uh, I guess, the setting, the, the, the sensitivity that you, that you set into it, right? Um, but yeah, how do you work through that? Yeah, the, the answer is it, it depends. And it's actually a, the question itself um, usually needs to get turned around. So 
the the accuracy rate or the time to detect or even the false positive rate, um, which is all kind of saying the same thing, is dependent upon the users that you're trying to work with. And you may have different answers for different segments of users within an organization. So whereas it may be perfectly acceptable in a DOD capacity to uh, challenge and, and potentially even lock out a user after um, 10 seconds of suspicious activity, that may be completely unacceptable to a commercial establishment uh, in a call center, right? And so really the, the question becomes, what is the acceptable trade-off between time to detect and number of, of user interactions? And that's customizable, um, you know, as, as part of what we were just talking about. Um, there's definitely some trends. So what we're finding is the higher security establishments will typically prefer a more sensitive system where you're interacting with that user a little bit more often, whereas the more commercial and unregulated industries typically tend to prefer a, a slower time to detect. You know, if you can catch something within a minute or two, that's fine. Um, but decrease the amount of, of user interactions. So, you know, potentially we'll, we'll, we'll send a push notification to the user once every couple days when there's, there's something egregious um, happening and we just need to verify the identity of that user. And so because it's customizable, um, you know, not only can that be configured on a per user basis or a per user group basis, that can also change over time. So if you have some threat intelligence that says, um, you know, that, that a water treatment facility is, is being targeted because there's a known campaign out there, um, you can actually dial that up in real time for the entire organization. And, you know, for, for the next couple of weeks while that campaign is underway, um, you can increase in real time that protection. So it provides a, a, a much higher uh, degree of granularity for administrators and um, uh, IT staff to be able to adapt to the environment. That's pretty impressive. You mentioned uh, the DOD, um, and I think you mentioned a couple other um, industries, but where are you having the most success right now? Well, I think regulated industries in general are required. So there's an external force that says uh, financial institutions, uh, critical infrastructure, healthcare, they're all required to have certain controls. And those controls might be multi-factor authentication if you're connected in remotely. It might be continuous monitoring um, or some level of identity assurance. So I think just because there is that external driver, um, we see most of the uh, most of our our interest coming from those types of industries. Um, but I think that there's also uh, quite a lot of uh, early adopters in non-regulated industries. Um, we were actually approached by a food manufacturer. And they use a lot of the same uh, SCADA control systems that uh, uh, traditional critical infrastructure would use. And they actually felt like their threat posture needed to be more similar to a power plant or, or uh, a water treatment facility. So it's kind of interesting. I wouldn't have thought originally going into it that uh, you know, a, a food manufacturer would really be that, that um, threatened. Um, but they, they just had a, a particular understanding about their, their threat environment. Also quite, quite interesting as well. Um, so how does the, how does your technology work? Um, where does it reside and, you know, it, does it, it, does it work both on-prem, uh, cloud or, you know, where does it sit? So it, in general, it's a lightweight endpoint agent that gets deployed on, 
on the workstations, be it laptop, desktop. We also work just fine with remote access solutions. Uh, so it could be that you're tunneling in through a VPN. Uh, it could also be that you're you're on a, a Citrix NetScaler uh, virtual desktop environment or, or something similar. Um, ultimately, the, the software resides wherever the user is interacting, uh, regardless of whether that user is connected remotely uh, or, or on a virtual desktop or on a physical desktop. Um, it connects to a, a backend server. That server can be on-prem or it can be in the cloud. Um, we do have a, a full SaaS option that we just recently uh, came out with. Um, so it's it's very flexible. And we've been able to support organizations who are um, uh, extremely forward-thinking and, and can operate everything in the cloud, as well as organizations that need to be completely air-gapped uh, and have everything on-prem and, and just have no network connection to speak of to, uh, to the internet. Okay. And it sounds like, I mean, you used the example earlier of, of Windows Hello. So this is not a, a, a mutually exclusive solution. Um, you could be employing something like Windows Hello. Uh, you could be, I, I'm assuming you could be on Azure Active Directory. Um, but because this is not really related to identity, it's just, you know, authenticating, a kind of a continual authentication that you are who you say you are. Um, and it, it, you said it, it, can, it can reside on the endpoint, um, but you can also have the remote access solution. Um, am, I, am I getting that correct? Correct. And not, not only do we partner really well with uh, traditional multi-factor authentication providers, um, in some cases we actually recommend that they get deployed, right? So if you, if you consider that, uh, um, you know, a, a traditional login and password that you get from Windows or from Mac um, could be strengthened, then you know you may want to deploy a solution like a duo or a call sign uh, first to protect that authentication step and then once the user is authenticated then we would come in and provide that layer of continuous authentication or what we call invisible identity assurance throughout the user session so we've uh, we actually are, are more likely to partner with the, the traditional 2fa companies than anything else excellent okay well um you mentioned earlier that you had a, a quite a busy travel schedule. Um, where are you going to be this fall? Are you going to any of the big events, big shows? Yeah, so it's a good question. We're, we're just finalizing our, our trade show schedule. We were at DEF CON and Black Hat uh, just recently in Las Vegas and uh, got to survive the 120 degree heat. It's always good to Go to a hacker conference in jeans and dark shirts in in, in Las Vegas in the middle of August. Hey, well, you're you're not going to get any sympathy from me because I made the uh, very unwise decision to stop by Phoenix about three weeks ago, uh, on the way to the Grand Canyon uh, with with my family. With seven of us in an RV, and uh, we had friends in Phoenix. And I will never go to Phoenix in the summertime again. I I can't. I just couldn't imagine that a place could be that hot. We went to this quote unquote pool party, and it was like getting into a warm bath. It was crazy. <laughs> it was just and 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 Vegas. I'm was just the same but you do have those massively air-conditioned casinos and stuff and i'm sure they kept the pools somewhat cool but <laughs> yeah yeah so um so in any case we're we are going to be hitting a couple of the shows we're still finalizing that um you know if, if you guys are interested in, in checking out a demo or just seeing how the thing works um shoot us a note uh pluralock.com we've got a an ai chat bot there that you can chat with and then eventually it gets to a human um certainly you know drop us a line and and uh follow us on the social medias uh to hear kind of where we're going to pop up but uh very keen to uh to actually show some people how the thing works i've i've gotten the feedback that it, it actually appears like magic 
and it's taken a long time to get here. Um, you know, the technology went through about 35,000 hours of research to get it to the point where it's at today and generated uh, a number of patents as well. So it's pretty impressive and uh, uh, more than happy to, to show it off. Well, where that begs the question, um, you developed all the AI in, in-house or is this something that you, you partnered with some another organization? Uh, so the the core intellectual property was developed um, as part of a, a research project at a local university, and the the technical team, which included um, uh, tenure professors and PhD students, and then uh, postdocs, um, were were the original brainchild, and then that that formed the basis of our core technical team, uh, and then we we grew out from there. So um, you, you consider us to be a university spin out. Uh, which would be a, a, a not too inaccurate description. Great. And in terms of demos, uh, that I mean, can you actually allow somebody to download um, one of the tools and try it out, or is it just watching how it works? I mean, do you actually get to to, to play with it? Yeah, we do. We actually have a sandbox environment. So okay. if for those who are interested, you can you can connect with us, and we can get you set up with that sandbox environment. Um, but we can also just do a, you know, a, a quick 10, 15 minute kind of show and tell. And, you know, because we, we work very well with uh, remote access, um, we can actually do screen shares and, and let you sort of play with it without having to, to go through any installation. Well, excellent. Okay, well, Ian, it was great talking with you. Um, I wish you and Pluralek a, a lot of um, success. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that, that uh, you'll be seeing that. Uh, we at Adequest, we, we we're dealing with MFA and conditional access solutions all the time. Um, but I think you're, you're providing a, just that extra layer of security that um, that is needed. You know, it's, it's so um, I appreciate your time and look forward to uh, to cross and pass with you sometime soon. Likewise, Mark. Thanks. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk.